0: and she has gone many days without a headache. And so we are so very, very thankful to the Lord. What she has been diagnosed with is um, hemicranium, um, hemicrania continuum, which is a headache that is on one side of the head and because it's on one side of the head, of course, it radiates to the other, but it's on one side of the head, and there's only one medication that will treat it. And the only way they can diagnose it is by giving you the medication. If it takes it away, that's what it is. And so she began it, and it has taken the headaches away. She still deals with the migraines and the other issues, but those are um, different from the headache that she endured day after day. So we are very thankful to the Lord for giving us that uh, blessing in having her. It's just nice to have Joyce back. It just is really nice to have Joyce back. I've missed her. (laughs) Ephesians, please. Ephesians chapter 3. And we're going to be reading out of uh, Paul's second prayer, a portion of Paul's second prayer that he records for us in Ephesians. It was very interesting to me this week, as I prepared to, to come here to speak, that I prepared one full message on suffering and hardship and pain, which would have flowed out of the messages I gave last time that dealt with the being conformed to the image of God when we spoke back in September of this year. Then... Um, after having that one completely ready and prepared, I, as I was praying about it, I didn't feel a lot of peace, and so I prepared another whole message. And that whole message was now on the way in which Luke. And we discussed this briefly at, at one point in time. The way that Luke forms a Christology, if you will, in the writing of his of his gospel and how uniquely, having gained all this understanding and gained all this insight from the material that he gathers, how he organizes it in a way that exalts Jesus Christ by the use of that word "curious," by the use of that word Lord. And then I had that all done, and I was feeling good, and then I got up the next day and I said, mm, Lord, I'm not sure. I'm not sure, and I prayed about it, and I told Joyce about it, and she said, You're kidding me. You've got to start on the third one, and I did. And I began looking at this this morning. And this is where I finally settled. Uh, you know, it's, it's very hard to know if this is indeed of the Lord or if it's just me. But I believe that as I prayed about it and prayed about, it, this is the area that I felt peace as I, as I came to share with you this morning. So if after this message you feel like that was a waste of time, then I probably misunderstood the, the leading of the Spirit of God. Let's begin reading in Ephesians chapter 3, and we're going to begin reading at, well, we'll read this whole prayer, beginning at verse 14. Paul writes, for this reason, and in order to find this reason, you have to go all the way back, and we're not going to do that this morning, back to verse 19 of chapter 2, and you can do that on your own. For this reason, I bow my knees to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, from whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with might through his spirit in the inner man, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width and length and depth and height, to know the love of Christ, which passes knowledge that you may be filled with the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to the power that works within us, to him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. And let's pray together. Father, we acknowledge that your word is an amazing, amazing document. All the way through from beginning to end. We see and hear your voice speaking. And Father, we want to be careful as we read it and as we study it and especially as we teach it, that it would be that which would glorify thee and glorify thy son. So we ask for your help. We ask for your guidance this morning. For we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Now Paul, here in this second prayer that he records for us, desires that they would be able to comprehend with all the saints the many dimensions of the love of God, that they might be able to understand and comprehend with all the saints all the dimensions of Christ's love, that the saint might be able to know the love of Christ, which passes knowledge. In other words, to be able to understand the, that which is incomprehensible. How do you understand something that is incomprehensible? How do you understand something that goes beyond knowledge and beyond understanding? You probe and you probe and you probe and you enjoy and you enjoy and you enjoy an ocean that has no bottom. But it doesn't mean you quit probing, does it? It doesn't mean you quit searching to know the love of Christ which passes knowledge that you may be filled with the fullness of God. What a wonderful, wonderful prayer. And I wonder if that's the kind of prayer we pray for one another. We often pray for all our illnesses. And we often pray for all our shortcomings. We often pray for all our sins and our failures. But do we pray these kind of things for one another? Oh, how important these things are to be praying for and as with all the attributes of God love is an attribute that cannot be measured love is an attribute of God that is infinite as all the attributes of God are they cannot be measured and certainly his love cannot be measured but we can understand and we can begin to know the multifaceted aspects of that love. The different ranges of that love. The different scope of that love. And all the different aspects of that love. Through the Spirit of God, through the Holy Spirit, we can begin to understand, begin to grasp that which we can never fully grasp. The love of our God, By means of the Spirit of God, he says in this prayer, we can be strengthened in the inner man. Strengthened in the inner man. In the very depths of our being to find strength through the Spirit of God. In order that Christ may dwell in your innermost being. That Christ might dwell in your heart. Heart. And the word dwell here has the idea, it comes from the word for a house. It has the idea that he would find himself perfectly at home in your heart and your life. That there would not be things in your life that causes him to be uncomfortable in us. That he might dwell in your innermost being through faith. And that we might be able to comprehend with all the saints the dimensions of the program of God, that we might understand all the dimensions of the program of God that Paul has been laying out some of them for them as he's been going forward in this letter, showing him the dimensions of the mystery, showing him the dimensions of the salvation that God has brought, that we might be able to comprehend the length and the depth and the width and the height of all of the things that God has done to reach out to know those things, and certainly, combined with that, is the love of God. To know the different dimensions of the love of God, because the love of God and all the plans of God, all the purposes of God, are intertwined. Because there's something interesting about the attributes of God, and you all know these things. And as I discussed these things with my wife. I say, you know, there is nothing any longer that a teacher can teach to most people within the assembly of God's people because they have studied these things over all of the years and have heard these things over all of the years. And all we can hope to do is remind them, encourage them, or remind them of things that they have already studied and already have a grasp on and an understanding of. But when he speaks here, that we might be able to comprehend the dimensions of the program of God, that we might be able to understand the dimensions of his love as they are intertwined together. And we recognize that all the attributes of God, of which love is one, all of his attributes, all are functioning at the same time. They're all functioning completely without conflict, continuously, continuously. And I suppose we could say, harmoniously, I suppose we could say, uh, what's another good word? Homogenously, is that a word? It is now. That they all blend together and function together all at the same time without ever having a conflict. That is the greatness of our God. That is the greatness of our God. And certainly his love is that way. It has all these dimensions of the love of God. And then as a separate clause, he adds, to know the love of Christ, which surpasses knowledge. And I was reminded of that last stanza of Frederick Lehman's now classic song, Could we with ink the ocean fill or were the skies of parchment made, where every stalk on earth a quill and every man a scribe by trade to write the love of God above would drain the ocean dry, nor could the scroll contain the whole, though stretched from sky to sky. Beautiful words, aren't they? And you remember the the two other stanzas that go with that song, but it's interesting to note, and this is just a sidebar, And I probably shouldn't go there because our time is limited. But these words in this last stanza were written thousands of years before he wrote the first two stanzas. And this stanza, written thousands of years before, was written by a Jewish man, a Jewish scholar, years ago to express the love of God. And he heard... Frederick heard these words being spoken by an evangelist in a presentation of a gospel message. And where he got the words were from a wall in a a sane asylum. Someone had written them on the wall of the sane asylum. And he read those words, not knowing that they came from thousands of years before. What a testimony to the faithfulness of God. The love of God that knows no bounds, knows no depth, knows no height. A.W. Tozer, on his uh, books on the attributes of God, and how many, how many of you have read T- A.W. Tozer's books on the attributes of God? Oh, if you haven't, you need to. They are very, very well written and easy to read. They're not complicated. They're simple to read, and they are full of wonderful truths. And in volume two of that that work, as the very last of the attributes to meditate on, he says in the introduction to that chapter on love, the love of God is the hardest of all his attributes to speak about. You may not understand God's love for us. I don't know that I do myself. We are trying to comprehend the incomprehensible. It is like trying to take the ocean in your arms or embrace the atmosphere or rise to the stars. The difficult doctrine of the love of God, as many have titled it over the years. I've read many books on this subject. Many who have called it the difficult doctrine of the love of God. Some of them have been better than others, (laughs) as I've read through them. Some are so extremely sentimental, so fluffy, that I kind of almost turn away from them. Others are going to the other extreme and are very theological and stoic. There is a balance between the two. Whenever you see these extremes... Generally, it means that there is a misunderstanding on both ends and there's something in between where it lies. Something in between where the truth lies. We have had the godly brethren over the centuries preach of the love of God, expound on the love of God, and we are in their debt for the things that we have learned from them. We are thankful to them for the scope that they have given to us of the love of God the scope that they have filled our minds with concerning this attribute of God. And as I mentioned earlier, we want to spend our time over the course of these weeks taking another look at what has become, as I just said, written by many as the difficult doctrine of the love of God and the dimensions of that love. We find ourselves, wittingly or not, we find ourselves living within a framework of thought that has become pervasive in our culture that has distorted somewhat the biblical teaching on the love of God. The biblical teaching on the love of God has become distorted in the culture in which we live. And we would understand that having grown up in in the the Word of God and having been taught by the teaching brethren that have come through and through your own personal study of the Word of God, the love of God becomes somewhat difficult to articulate now in the culture in which we live because of these strains of thought. Some have the concept, wrongly so, and you have heard this and dealt with it, that God is love. Therefore, love is God. God is love, therefore love is God. And so, I will pursue love and I will pursue kindness because in pursuing love and pursuing kindness, I pursue God. That is an error. Because love is not God. God is love. So you don't pursue love you pursue god who is love and if you get the other you get the horse before the cart you can be in trouble theologically you can be in trouble that's a grave error when we as believers speak of the love of god we mean something quite different from what the culture surrounding us believes and we need to be sure that we comprehend that And if we're not careful, we may find ourselves using the same terminology, using terms that are being interpreted by the one that hears us as something very different from what we mean. This happens a lot when we're dealing with the cults, doesn't it? When you're dealing with the cults, you may use terms like redemption, you may use terms like atonement, you may use terms like forgiveness, you may use all kinds of different terms. And what they hear is different from what you mean. Because their doctrine has twisted what you teach them. And the same is true when we come to this doctrine of the love of God. And when, if we're not careful, we can fall into the same mistakes. What the scripture teach regarding the love of God is in perfect harmony with all the attributes of God, with all the other attributes that God possesses. His attribute of love is in perfect harmony, blended together. If we separate what the Bible teaches about the sovereignty of God if we separate what the Bible teaches about the holiness of God, the wrath of God, the providence of God, the personhood of God. If we separate those things from his love, our understanding becomes lopsided. Our understanding becomes lopsided and we can be misunderstood. Is any of this making any sense? Okay. <laughs> Or worse, worse even than that, we begin to adapt our thinking of the love of God to how the culture around us has perceived it and diluted it. In our day and age, man wants to remove anything that is uncomfortable. Anything that is uncomfortable we'll do away with. We do not want to talk about sin and judgment. We do not want to talk about hell. We do not want to talk about eternal judgment. That's uncomfortable. So we'll kind of dismiss those things and we won't talk about them. And in doing so, many dimensions of the love of God as taught to us in the word of God are sanitized and diluted and made a sentimental thing, exclusively sentimental. We will remember, if we read much of the the men and women of the faith in years gone by, from the time of the early church fathers, even through the beginning of the 20th century, you will notice a a shift in thinking when you get to the middle of the 20th century. Not that this wasn't also found in the day of the earlier fathers or even unto the beginning of the 20th century, but that shift comes in an understanding of the judgment of God. For years and years and years and centuries, men understood if they heard the word of God, they understood that the judgment of God was coming. They understood, even if they understood it in, in ways that were contrary to the word of God in sometimes, even though they understood those things, they were still had a fear of the coming judgment of God. They believed this so strongly in years gone by. They believed so strongly that they were sinners condemned to die that when you asked them, what do you think of God? Before God, I'm a, I'm a sinner. I know, it. I'm a, I know I'm a sinner. I know I'm on my way to hell. They would recognize their condition before God, recognize that they were sinners deserving of judgment, that they found it difficult to even believe In the love of God. And when they heard the gospel of the love of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God for them, they were amazed that God would love them like he loves them. They stood amazed at the gospel of Jesus Christ. They saw it as wonderful good news. Today, when you speak to someone about God's love for them, they think, of course God loves me. Why wouldn't he love me? I'm kind of nice. I never murdered anybody. I never committed the heinous acts that some do. I, I, I think that I'll go to heaven. And what do you base that on? God loves me. That, that is pervasive in our society today. That is pervasive. Very rarely will you ask someone, so uh, do you think you're going to heaven? And they say, oh, no, <laughs> I'm, I'm going to hell forever. I know. Ray, normally, the answer will be in our society today is, yeah, I'm, I'm okay. You know, I've, I've tried my best and God sees me and he, he loves me. And so you're okay. I'm okay. And we're, we're all going to be in heaven one day together. Of course he loves me. I'm not a bad person. And my deviant behavior is my choice. My deviant behavior is my choice. And God loves me and he wants me to be happy. And don't think that that's not a prevalent thinking in the world that is around us. It is a prevalent thinking in the world around us. And those with similar views will find it quite easy to find a church home that will agree with them. In 1980, and this goes back quite a ways now, so it's an old poll, and I think this poll would probably, if you extrapolated it out, would be far greater than it is today. I mean, today than it was then. But a poll was taken in the Religious Change in America, in which it was said when people were asked, do they prefer to speak of God as friend or as king? The vast majority said friend over King. What does King infer? King infers that I have a responsibility under the authority of someone who is greater than I. Friend means, you know, we get along, we're buddies. He loves me. It's great. Can you imagine if the question had been, what do you prefer, friend or judge? Can you imagine the vastness now? Many, many prefer that, and many, many just kind of have this idea that it's okay. God loves me, and what I do is okay. And if you ask the, another question about the judgment of God, that do you understand that the sin that you are involved in will bring the judgment of God? Yes, the God who loves you in his holiness will judge you one day for that sin? And the answer will be, judge not, let you be judged. How can you judge me? God will judge me. You can't judge me. It's not me. It's the word of God. Oh, bother that. God loves me. And he wants me to be happy. He wants me to be happy. A true understanding of the Word of God, which encompasses his sovereignty, his holiness, his wrath, his justice, as well as his omnipotence, his grace and his mercy is waning in our time an understanding of the vastness of who he is is waning in our time so it is incumbent upon us it's funny when i write words like that down you know i think to myself now why did i choose the word incumbent did it just sound kind of intelligent or what did i choose that for but it it becomes our responsibility to make sure we understand the various aspects by which the love of God biblically functions. The way the love of God biblically functions, lest we reduce it to a sappy, syrupy, sentimental love alone. But that is not to say my brothers and sisters, and let me make this very clear, that is not to say that there is impassivity in God. That is not to say there is impassivity in God. God has emotion that he expresses, even though he is the transcendent God who is above all things, fills all things, yet at the same time there is a passivity, there is a emotion that you see running throughout Scripture. And hopefully in the weeks to come, we might see some of that. Lord willing, we might see some of that again. We're probing on the outskirts of this. Obviously, as I'm seeing that my time is almost gone already this morning. That we are not going to be able to see this in its full orb. we're not going to be able to see this in its fullness. We're going to probe on the outsides of it, probe along in it with the hope of stirring you to want to see it deeper, stirring you to want to understand it better. Then there's the continuing and growing issue of tolerance, of tolerance, by which I mean more and more who are holding to the progressive doctrine, and yes, it is a doctrine that all religions are equal. Therefore, you must not hold that what you believe is somehow superior to what someone else holds. Oh, no, no, you can't do that. All are equal. All are heading toward God. God loves the way in which all people worship as long as they worship and are getting a sense of fulfillment And all that I do. I am doing, even if what I'm doing is wrong, even what I'm doing is against the word of God, God still loves me and sees that I'm trying to reach him in my own way. And he will honor that. No, he won't. He will honor his word. He will honor what he has told us and taught us. He will honor his word above his name. We can synthesize things together. We can blend them together. Interesting blending, and I probably shouldn't go into this because I've talked about the kanyaus here before, so I won't explain what a kanyo is, but up in the mountains, in the Philippines, they have these kanyaus where, where it's really a worship of animism. It's really a worship of, of, of other gods, if you will, and They also embrace Christianity, and they put the two things together, and they say, this is our religion. And people say, oh, that's very nice. That's very nice. You have your cultural religion that you grew up in, and you have embraced Christianity as well. Very nice. No, very bad. They should be burning the old ways, burning the old books placing them away, not joining them together. So we can synthesize things. As I said, you're okay, I'm okay, we're all good. The church cannot allow the world to dictate its doctrine. Let me say that again. The church cannot allow the world to dictate its doctrine. When it does, when the church... And by that, I am using quotes. When it does, when the church has done this, as it's done in many circles, and you know that's true, you will end up with a sentimentalized, synchronized, pluralistic view of the love of God that has drifted far from its moorings. And we need to guard against it. There are those who adamantly disagree with any talk about the love of God. You're aware of that, aren't you? Are you aware of that? You are aware of that. There are those who who adamantly will reject the idea of the love of God. Their premise is this. If God is a God of love, why? You've heard that, haven't you? If God is a God of love, why the great wars? Why? Korea, Vietnam, in multiple conflicts in which millions have died, innocent civilians died, innocent people perish. If God is a God of love, why? If God is a God of love, why are millions of innocent people, many, millions of innocent children dying of starvation in the midst of famine? Why are the Christians, they would say, along with the atheists, dying in the same way in the same plagues if God is a God of love why are millions of babies born with horrendous birth defects and the list of dissension goes on and on and on why if he's a God of love they reason this way and I hate to leave us here but he reasons with they reason this way if God is omnipotent and we believe he's omnipotent do we not We believe in the omnipotent God, that he is all-powerful. If God is omnipotent, they claim, he cannot be at the same time perfectly good. Why, you say? Well, why can't he be perfectly good and omnipotent? They will argue. If he is omnipotent and does nothing to stop these horrendous things that are going on in the world that we have just mentioned, if he is omnipotent and does not stop all of that suffering, he is not perfectly good. And if he's perfectly good and is unable to stop it, then he's not omnipotent. That's reason. That's the way men will reason and think because they do not have a fully shaped orb of what the love of God entails, of what it is. It is unbalanced. And some will teach in the churches, some will teach those very things in the churches, taking one side or the other. God is not completely omnipotent. God is not completely good. That's sad, isn't it? That's sad, but you will hear it, and as you read, you will read it. It's unbalanced. When we turn the love of God into a sentimentalized version of love, we lose our ability to think through the other characteristics, the other attributes of God that function simultaneously without conflict with love. Do you get that? So, I've laid a foundation. A poor one, perhaps. I've struggled to try and lay a foundation, perhaps. But I've laid a foundation. I've laid a foundation. And I want to think through these characteristics and attributes of God that function simultaneously within, within the love of God. I've laid the, fun- the framework. And I didn't want us to overlook the dangers that I'm going to be speaking of as we go forward. Now, our time is gone. I really had more to say today. I didn't want to leave you there. But if I start on the next paragraph, we're going to be here for another half hour at least. And we don't want to do that to you. We don't want to subject you (laughs) you to that torment of another half hour. So we will begin building from this point. But what that means is on the back end, we're going to lose something as well. So we will see as we go forward, as we formulate these messages. But what I want to get across to you this morning is this. The Lord, by his spirit, wants us to understand and comprehend all the various dimensions of his love and all the various dimensions of his work and of his plan and of his purpose in the whole counsel of God. He wants us to comprehend those things by his spirit in order that we might begin to understand more fully the love of God, which goes beyond our ability to fathom its depths. But in doing so, and in seeking after these things, we might be able to, with all the saints, with all the saints, as, as Paul writes here, and I will read it lest I say it wrong, that you might be able to exceedingly do exceedingly abundantly all above all that we ask or think according to the power that is in us, that we might have the fullness of God. You want the fullness of God? Hmm. Will we achieve that in this life? Hmm. Should we stop probing the depths? No. No. I have had more joy probing the depths than laying on the surface. And so have you. There's so much to learn about the love of our God for us. And we'll... We'll pick up with that again next week. Father, we give you thanks. You are great. You are great beyond our ability to even comprehend greatness. You are the Almighty One. You are El Shaddai, and there is none like unto you, nothing that can be compared to you. And so it is with all of your attributes. All of your attributes, Lord, cannot be measured. All of you, All of the attributes that make you up are functioning all together, all at the same time, without conflict, in perfect balance. You are such a great God. And Father, as we probe around the peripherals of your love, may we gain fresh understanding. May we gain fresh awareness of the enemy and his ploys as well as the goodness that you have shown to us. We're thankful. We give you praise in Jesus' name. Amen.